Hey, we're going to continue in the Red Letter series the pastor started for us last week. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some specific text from the Gospels and looking specifically at some of the words that Jesus had directly for his disciples, for his followers, for us today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9, and we will continue uh, beginning with verse 30 uh, in, in just a moment. But I hope that you've discovered in your life, my guess is that you already have discovered in your life, that there is a strong connection uh, in our lives between some of the most memorable moments uh, in our lives and how they are forged on the anvil of crisis. You know, a crisis can be something that's good or bad. Uh, even the psychologists tell us the birth of a child is a crisis. It's a good crisis, but it's something that's life-changing for you, and it causes you to remember that moment. And so I'm guessing that if you go back through some of the most memorable moments of your life, you will find those connected to some kind of probably some kind of crisis moment in your life. I had one such moment that is etched in my memory, June 1986. Jan and I had been married for four months. We decided to take a group of 45 teenagers to Bryson City, North Carolina. And we were going to Bryson City because it was at that location we would be getting into the Natahala River and we would go whitewater rafting. Now, that seemed like a good idea. I have never been, had never been whitewater rafting before. Jan had been twice on that river. She said, let me, it's, it's a class two river. That means it's really easy. I did enough research to learn that there were like class five rivers. And I knew that I didn't want to have anything to do with fours and fives. That was not my cup of tea. But a class two river seemed harmless enough. So we made plans to go. We arrived uh, there on time, got to the outfitters, and they took us through this little safety training thing that they, uh, orientation they take you through before you go rafting. Now, we had a guided tour, and what that meant was that we had 10 rafts, six men or six people in each raft, and we had four professional guides with us. We had a lead guide, had a couple of guides scattered in the middle, and we had a sweep raft to clean up whatever was left along the way. So <clears throat> we went through our training, and I began looking around and I realized that in the middle of this um, situation, that sometimes the crisis moments that we have in our life are a result of making a bad decision. And sometimes those bad decisions are followed by other bad decisions. And that's what was going on in my life on this day. I looked around and assessed the situation, and I'm thinking this, okay, I'm an adult. I probably shouldn't get in one of the rafts with one of the guides. I mean, you know, I got middle schoolers here, so I should let them be in those rafts with the people that know what they're doing, and we'll be okay, I'm sure. So I made a decision to get uh, Jan and me to get in the raft with four other novice rafters. We don't know anything about what we're doing. We've, given, we've been given the instruction, know how to put on our life jacket and all that kind of stuff, so we're, we're in here, and they launch our raft. We're probably number six or seven out of 10 that are going down the Natahala River. And we begin going, and, and our challenge is to try to get the boat going this way, you know, going the way you want it to go, pointed in the right direction. We're going sideways down the river, and we're trying to get this thing navigated back and forth and getting it to go right. Well, as we look up, as we're going down sideways down the river, there's a big rock jetting up in the river, and we hit that rock, and our raft stops abruptly. Three people on that side of the raft into the water. The three remaining brilliant people in the raft, of which I was one, made a decision. We all, at the same time, executed the plan that we were told. If someone falls out, you grab them by their life vest and you yank them back in. All three of us leaned over the same side of the raft at the same time, grabbed a person and pulled. 
the raft capsized. The raft's going this way. Six of us are now in the water. They're going all over the place. Like, this is crazy. All I could remember at that moment was one little bit of instruction. The guy said, if you're in the water, quickly flip over on your back, your knees up. He said, the way you get white water is rocks are going this way, water's going this way, and if you have your feet down, you can get caught in those rocks and trapped. We'll find you at the end of the day when they shut the dam off at the top of the mountain, but you know, you don't want to be there, feet up, okay? So I rolled over quickly on the back. The water was cold, it was 42 degrees. I'm screaming like a girl. I mean, I'm just like, help, help. I'm thinking I'm dying out here in this water. I finally got picked up by another raft and everybody got picked up. Uh, there was a, a little lagoon area uh, off to the side. They were able to get all of our rafts together. They secured our loose raft and we all got back in. We had two more hours of this to go and we had been in the water 10 minutes and I'm thinking, oh, this is a nightmare. So we make our way on down the river and we get near the end and our guide pulls us off again and says, once you get out, we're gonna walk down this path. We're gonna show you how to navigate at the very end here. Like, like that's gonna help me, okay? Like, we, what do I know about this? So you see the big boulder there in the middle? You wanna to go to the right side of that and then you're gonna go off this little rapids here and then that'll be it. Guess what? We went left. And we went off in, over the falls, and then, so our boat got caught in this hydraulic underneath the falls, and it filled up with water, and we're just bouncing up and down. This is a picture of my wife. I think that's when I figured out we didn't have life insurance. We'd just been married, and that's not true. But um, Jan uh, popped out of the boat again there in that falls. She finally got a rope from someone. Finally, we got our raft out. We got finished with the day. We learned some valuable lessons that day. One of them was don't ever go whitewater rafting. I was like, oh my goodness, it was, it was tough. It, we made a series of decisions in that day and not all of those decisions were good. And some of those things led to moments like this. Well, as I read our text for today in Mark chapter nine, this is what I thought. I thought about this moment. I was like, wow, the disciples made a series of bad decisions. They weren't whitewater rafting with Jesus or anything, but they were traveling with Jesus. And in the course of this, their day, they made a decision and made another decision and made another decision. And those decisions created, I believe, this crisis moment for them. And I believe that the stage was set for them to learn some lessons that day that they never forgot the rest of their life. Jesus used this opportunity as a great teaching moment for them. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. The Bible says, And they departed from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, it's interesting that in this particular text, what we find is that this is the second time that Jesus has predicted his death. And the Bible says that they had departed from there. There was where? Well, there was north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in the early part of this chapter, Jesus is with the disciples, Peter, James, and John, at what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. They had gone up on this mountain, had this encounter with Elijah and Moses. After they came down from the mountain, there was a healing, a miracle of a healing of the boy that was possessed with a demon. And then as they're making their journey south, they have this conversation. Jesus decides to tell them a second time that we're heading to Jerusalem. 
And when we get there, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he's going to die. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, Jesus already had the cross in mind. He had this, the cross was in his sight, and they were making their journey southward toward Jerusalem. And he was going there with this specific purpose in mind. And the Bible tells us in verse 32 that they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. This is the second time Jesus has told them. If you go back to chapter 8, turn back one page, look at verses 31 through 33. The Bible says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chiefs, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke the word openly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had returned, or when he had turned around, he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. We didn't know why they were afraid. Maybe they remembered this moment. And maybe they remembered they didn't want to speak up or say anything more about this because Peter had not done well when he had spoken about this. Maybe they were fearful thinking, if he's going to die, what's going to happen to us? We're his followers. We're his friends. Maybe the same thing is in store for us. We don't know exactly why they were afraid. The Bible just tells us that they were afraid to ask him, so they remained quiet. They made a decision. Well, they made another decision here as well. They made a decision to change the topic these guys are walking down the road. They are making their way onto Capernaum, and they begin talking. Now, we learn after they get to Capernaum what they were talking about. Look at verse 33. The Bible says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Wow, there are a series of decisions being made here along the way. The first decision is that they were afraid. And you know, when we make decisions based on fear, they're not always our best decisions. So they decided to change the subject. They're traveling down the road, and again, probably as they were walking, you know, they may have spread out and stretched out on their journey as we're prone to do when we're hiking or walking somewhere. And so they probably weren't all bunched together, and as they straggled out, Maybe they began talking. Maybe one of the disciples was talking to Jesus, and some of the others began doing what guys do sometimes. Maybe we, you know, kind of do a little trash talking and bragging about ourselves and talking about what all we've done or, or how good we are at something, maybe a sport or something like that. And they were talking about who was going to be the greatest. Again, we don't know all of the content of that conversation, but perhaps as they were walking down the road, uh, they were be beginning to think about this future event. You see, maybe they were prone to think like some of their other Jewish friends that this kingdom that God was coming to set up was going to be an earthly kingdom. And maybe Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be this ruler that was going to help overthrow the Roman government and throw off this oppressive government. And they were talking among themselves about who's going to be in Jesus' cabinet, who's going to be in his administration Who's he going to appoint to be the ones in charge? They were thinking about themselves and thinking about how great it would be to be one of those that was in charge because they had found themselves the subject of others who had been in charge of them so many times. And so among themselves, they're talking. Perhaps 
One of them said, perhaps Peter said, you know, when Jesus comes to Capernaum, he always comes to my house. And I've, I've loaned him my house. He's been able to use it for ministry. Maybe he'll select me. Maybe his brother Andrew said, hey, wait a minute, Peter. You know, if it hadn't been for me, you probably wouldn't have ever met Jesus. Remember, I'm the one that introduced you. Maybe it was James or John that spoke up and said, well, hey, I think I'm going to be in the top three. You remember, I was one of the ones that just got to go with Jesus recently up on the mountain to meet Moses and Elijah. Again, we don't know what all they were talking about, but we do know that they were talking about greatness. And Jesus responds to them by asking them this very direct question. What was it that you were disputing among yourselves about while you were on the road? And they're quiet because they know they've kind of been busted. They're thinking, oh, we did not know he was listening. We, did not, oh, we didn't know Jesus was overhearing this conversation, but he was. And so they don't really want to tell him about what they were talking about. But Jesus goes ahead and does something for them. You see, Jesus recognized this was a great opportunity for them to come to grips with understanding. And for us to understand today how affected we are by sin. How affected we are by the fall of man. All the way back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, sin did something to mess up our ability to see the world rightly. You recognize that the writer of Proverbs says that for every one of us, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death and destruction. You realize that you can look at a situation and you can look at the world in such a way to think, this is the, I think this is the right thing to do. And you can just be confident this is the right thing to do. And you can be deadly wrong, even though you think it's the right thing to do. You see, each one of us sees the world through our eyes and through the lens that from which we see the world. Without a standard and a foundation for truth, for absolute and objective truth, we are left to our own devices to figure out what's, what's good, what's not good, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. The last verse in the book of Judges says this, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. What a train wreck. Think about what our world is like when everybody is determining for themselves what is true and right and good and just and beautiful. That's a train wreck. Jesus recognized that, and he recognized that the disciples had bought into this misguided idea of greatness. You see, Jesus had this way of bringing an upside-down, inside-out kind of view of the world that was God's view. The writer of the prophet Isaiah wrote this. He said that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and our ways. And so because of sin, you and I struggle with this as well. How do we see the world the way God sees the world? And Jesus took this opportunity to help the disciples, to teach them that they were affected by this misguided view that the world had of what is great. You see, the disciples were thinking to be great is to be the one in charge, is to be the one to have a title, to have a position, to have uh, possessions. Um, and that's what it means to be great, to achieve much, to be first in rank, to be first in order. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. Look at what the Bible says Jesus did. Verse 35, and he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Did you hear that? 
must have been a strange moment for the disciples. Jesus goes ahead and, and tells them what they've been talking about. They didn't tell him. He knew what they were talking about. So he decided to just take this opportunity. Sit down, guys. Let's talk. Look, if any of you want to be great, if any of you desires to be first, here's what you need to know. Don't buy in to the world's way of looking at greatness. Again, Jesus had this way of bringing a, a right perspective to our world and helping us see the world rightly. You see, the world says it's better to receive. It's better to get. Jesus said, by comparison, though, it's better to give than it is to receive. The world would say, if someone does you wrong, you need to get even. Get revenge. What did Jesus say? He said you need to forgive others. The world would teach us to hate our enemies. Jesus would say you need to love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. The world would say you need to look out for number one because no one else is looking out for you. And Jesus would say don't seek to save your life. You need to lose your life if you would save it. The world would say you need to promote yourself. You need to exalt yourself. Jesus would say you need to humble yourself before the Lord. The world would say, you need to be the one in charge to rule over others. Jesus would say, by contrast, serve one another. So this idea that Jesus is presenting to them is, of greatness is one that um, no doubt got their attention. And it caused them to recognize that they had bought into this view of greatness. That greatness would be step one, and then you'd move up the ladder to step two, and then you'd move up the ladder to step three. But instead, Jesus tells him something completely different. He said, here's the secret to greatness. The way up is down. The way up is down. And when we start to look at what it means to be truly great in God's kingdom, it is step one, step two, and step three. Jesus told them, if you would desire to be first or if you desire to be great, you need to be last of all and servant of all. He used an interesting word. He used the word diakonos, the Greek word diakonos. It's a simple word. It means servant. It's the word that we get the word deacon from in our church. In the book of Acts, later you would see an establishment of a group of individuals that would be known as deacons in the church. We have deacons in our church. They are men who have been set aside by this body of believers for one distinct purpose. What is that purpose? Their job is to serve the needs of this body of Christ. What a great thing for an individual to give themselves away in service. But the disciples, uh, Jesus was not talking about them uh, becoming an office in the church. He was just saying to all of us who would be followers of Christ, if you desire to be great, you need to be last of all, and you need to be servant of all. It was a word they understood. They lived in a world of servants. You see, they would have understood when Jesus used that word that the servant was the one who would, uh, would, would serve the tables. He would serve the food to people. And then later, he would find a place somewhere in the back to eat. The servant recognized that he would take care of the master's household and then later would take care of his own needs. The servant recognized that he would be the one to wash the feet, the dirty feet of the guest as they came into the house, and later would take care of washing his own feet on his own time. He recognized that he would be sitting at the back of the room while the guests sat in the front of the room in the seat of honor. The servant, they recognized that a servant was one 
who would not be called to the table to ask, what's your opinion, what do you think we should do? Instead, that the servant was one who would simply be told what to do on behalf of the master. So they understood what it was that Jesus was saying, and probably it didn't sound real exciting to them. Didn't sound like this was a lot of fun. Remember, in their minds, they're thinking, we're going to set up this big kingdom, and I want to be in charge. And Jesus is telling me all of a sudden, if I want to be great, I need to understand that it's not about being an influential leader in the world. It's not about being the top dog. It could not have been a comfortable moment. D.L. Moody said about this idea of service that the measure, the true measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he has served. It's true. Jesus helps us with getting our definitions right. He helps us with getting our perspective right and seeing the world right. So easy for us to get caught up in the world's perspective on what it means to truly be great. And Jesus turns all of that upside down for the disciples and said, if you want to be great, you learn how to be a servant. It's not only important to know what is valued in the kingdom. That's the first step is to know what is valued in the kingdom. Service is valued in the kingdom. Second step is to know who is valued in the kingdom. Because Jesus didn't just say that they needed to serve, but he was very specific about what it was he said they should do. Look at verse 35. The Bible says, Then he took a child and sat in their midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What's Jesus doing? He's giving them a beautiful object lesson in this moment. He brought a small child. Some scholars think it was maybe one of Peter's children. I'm inclined to think it might have even been a small baby that Jesus brought, sat in their midst, uh, or held, took in his arms, and began talking to them. What Jesus was saying to them was they needed to understand what is valuable in the kingdom, but they also need to understand who is valuable in the kingdom. By using a child, Jesus was helping them get this picture and a clear understanding that this child represented people that are often overlooked in society. You see, just like our culture today, adults have a different status, a different class. Um, they have a different position in the world. They're valued differently than our children. And so Jesus brought this child and sat in front of them, and he told them, whoever receives... A child like this, who cares for, uh, who loves, who provides for, uh, whoever does this, he said, receives me, but not just him, receives the one who sent me. What does a child add? How does a child add value to a family? Really? Well, you might say a child adds joy, and that would be true, and, and, and adds love. Uh, but a child can also add heartache to a family. We had uh, this uh, 4th of July, we had some friends over, and we had a couple that had adopted a, new, a newborn. And that child, uh, whose name is Joy, brought much joy. There were many people that gathered around to celebrate this new life. But when you stop to think about it in reality, what did this child offer to them? Really nothing. This child needed to be fed. This child had to be changed. This child has to be housed. This child has to be clothed. This child has to be taught. Everything. And Jesus was giving them in this picture an example of service to say it is important for us to serve all. 
not just some. You see, the child could do nothing back for them. The child could give them nothing back whatsoever. Jesus said it's important for us to serve all. Why? Because all are created by him. They're all created in his image. All people, all races, all socioeconomic groups, all people have value to God. All people, yes, created in God's image, all for which God has a plan, all for whom Christ died, all who are in need of the gospel. You see, it's possible for us to recognize from a leadership perspective that service alone has great value. Business recognizes the need for customer service because it's important for us to understand that even a secular world gets it, this law of the harvest or the law of reciprocity, that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Okay, We do that. But what Jesus was saying is that you need to serve those who can't do anything back for you at all. In Luke's gospel, we find the story of Jesus saying that when you give a party, don't invite your wealthy friends or family members. He said, instead, invite the poor and the needy. Why? Because in doing that, you are serving them, and they can never do back for you. It's a process and a picture of giving. Well, Jesus is telling us in this text that we need to know what is valuable in the kingdom, that service who is valuable in the kingdom? All. Jesus said if you want to be great, you need to be the last of all, and you need to be the servant of all. As we continue on in this text, one of the things that we understand in this is that uh, this section on the child it reads much like Matthew chapter 25. You recall the story of Jesus addressing um, a group of people, talking to them and teaching them about the judgment of the nations. He said, there will be this time when individuals will stand before God and they will say, Lord, when did we see you um, hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come and visit you? And Jesus would respond and say to them, and as much as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. You see, our picture of serving others has a lot to do with our vertical relationship with God is expressed in the horizontal relationships that God allows us to have with one another. Well, if those are two of the steps, knowing what and who is valued, it's important also to know why serving all has value. See, there are a series of decisions being made here along the way, and John makes another decision in verse 38. John decides that I got an idea here. This is not going real well. We've been busted for talking about greatness, and we didn't know what it was, and Jesus has corrected us. So how about if we change the subject? And let's talk about something different. I'll bring up something that Jesus will say. You guys rock. Y'all are awesome, okay? So John decides he'll speak up, and in doing so, here's what he says. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Well, John was making a point that, I mean, this is, you know, we're close to you, and then we're a small group here, and just the 13 of us, and there was a guy that's not a part of our group, and he was doing some things, and he was using your name, and he was casting out demons. We stopped that. We nipped that in the bud. And he's looking for Jesus to say, great job. You guys are awesome. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 39. Jesus turns things upside down again for him, and he says, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name 
can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Wow, shocking. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. John's seeking approval from Jesus and hoping that if he changes the subject, things will go well. Jesus helps him know that the kingdom is much bigger than he thinks it is. It's not just us four and no more. The kingdom is big. He said that we need to be careful. We need to be careful with God's work and interfering with God's work and others who are doing that. You see, the point of this last part of the text, uh, or the key to this, really are, are those words, in Jesus' name, or in Christ's name. It has everything to do with who is going to get the credit for the work that is going to be done. See, in the previous verse in 37, Jesus said, whoever receives this child, um, this little one in my name, and then also this man was casting out demons in Christ's name, and he talks about giving the cup of water in Christ's name. It's a distinction that is made here between humanitarian aid and service that is done in the name of Christ. You recognize that it's not just about serving all. It's about serving all for God's glory. It's about making sure that he gets the glory for what it is that we're doing. There are foundations that have set aside millions of dollars, billions of dollars, to help needy people in the world. And at the top of those foundations are the names of those contributors. Why? Because it's important that people understand where this help's coming from. Even our government does that. We give aid to other countries. We also want to be sure you understand this is U.S. aid. Okay? Why? Because it's important that you know where this came from. And what Jesus is helping us to see is that it's important for us to serve others in his name, for us to be sure that we are giving him glory for what it is that we're doing, and that people are not patting us on the back, but instead what we do, we do for the cause of Christ. It's a picture for us to be reminded that as we serve, we have to ask ourselves a question about our motivation for our service. Do we serve for recognition? Would we continue to serve Christ as we're serving Christ if no one else ever knew that we were serving? You see, Jesus says even this small cup of water can be a gesture that is done in his name. And service in the name of Christ, great or small, will never go unrecognized nor unrewarded. But the motivation is huge. You see, we don't serve in order to be saved. It's interesting to me that the enemy has taken something as wonderful and as grand as service to another person and twisted it and used it to deceive many people. Do you know there are people, some might be sitting here today, who believe if I but serve other people, somehow God will reward me with forgiveness of my sin and salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, we don't serve in order to be saved. Paul made that clear in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. If I have done a lot of good things, and I'm somehow thinking that God owes me something because I've done some great things, I'm probably going to brag about the things that I've done. But the truth is, Jesus has already done everything for me. Our true Christian service really flows out of a heart that has been changed and transformed by Jesus. When we recognize that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, 
And he changes our heart into one who is that of a giver, one into that who is a server. And he says that it's possible for us to be great, but that greatness is not the way the world thinks of greatness. It's different. And so my challenge to you today is to recognize that the difference in this is who gets the credit. When you serve, when you give, when you care for others, is it in Christ's name? You see, doing something in Jesus' name or like praying in Jesus' name is not just a phrase to tag onto the end of something. It is to do something as if Christ were himself physically here doing what he would do. And when we pray in Jesus' name, it is that we are praying as Christ would pray, not just a phrase to add to the end of our prayer. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we need to be careful about our motivation. He said that when you give your offering, he said don't go make a lot of noise, blow a trumpet, ring a trumpet or ring a bell and just say, hey, I just want you to know I'm dropping a $100 bill on the offering plate. He said if you do that, you know what? He said you already have your reward. You have the applause of men and you're finished. Jesus said that we should store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust is not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. He said, when you pray, go into your closet privately. He said, don't go out here like some do and pray like hypocrites or pray like pagans and stand out on the street corner and make lots of noise and make sure that other people see you praying. He said, you know what? When you do that, call attention to yourself. You have your reward. Again, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus said that there's a way to be great, and that way is that there is a price to be paid. He never condemned greatness. He simply said the price to be paid was to be last of all, put others ahead of yourself, put yourself at the back of the line, and serving all. Our challenge really is that we would grow to be like Jesus. You see, this is how Jesus lived his life. This wasn't just one episode where he taught this very thing. The Bible tells us that uh, in 2 Peter that w- that. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we are to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And in due time, he will exalt us. Isn't that what he did with Jesus? Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself and he became obedient even to the point of death. Therefore, what did God do? God highly exalted him and gave to him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus said the way up is down. Our calling is to be like him, is to learn to serve like Jesus served. The writer of Proverbs said it this way, humility comes before honor. Now again, the disciples were all wrapped up in thinking about how will other people see me? John chapter 13 was the final uh, example that Jesus gave, or one of the last examples that Jesus gave of true service. He gathered together with the disciples in the upper room to share the Passover meal with them. And they realized that no one had arranged for a servant to be there to wash their dirty, dusty feet. Jesus, the Bible says, got up from where he was seated. He went and took the basin and the towel. And the Bible says that he he girded um, a towel around himself and he knelt down and he began to wash each one of the disciples' feet. He set the example for us of what it meant to serve. This picture of humility. 
So the disciples had to make some decisions for themselves. And I believe that it was on this day, on this road, that there was a, a picture etched in their mind that they did not soon forget about what it meant to truly be great. And then that night, as Jesus washed their feet, I think they recalled this experience. He said, you remember that day we were walking down the road and we were talking about what it meant to be great? And Jesus tells us that the way up is down. That Jesus told us if we wanted to be great, we need to be servant of all and be last of all. I have a question for you. Where are you serving in this body of Christ? I once worked for a pastor who said, my, my vision and dream for the church is that every member of this church would have one job and no member would have two jobs. I thought that was actually a great picture of the body of Christ at work. Every person with one job, no person with two jobs. I tell you, we have some wonderful people that make up this body of Christ, people that serve day in and day out. Where is it that you are serving in the life of this church and serving this body of Christ right now? So we wrap up. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to take that first edition that you got when you came in today, and I want you to tear out that guest card. Go ahead and make a bunch of noise and just tear out everybody so nobody will know you're tearing it out, okay? Just make some noise. Rip that thing out right there. We're about to go. I know. Some of you are manifesting packing behavior. I know. I understand. So just <laughs> unpack, unpack, get that thing out. Just tear it off real quick. Here's what I want you to do. I want to pray for you this week because I want you to, um, I, I want to ask our staff to, to uh, pray for people in our church that are serving. And I just want you to write your name down on that prayer request side. Just write your name on there and just write where it is that you serve Christ in this church. Because that really is the point of serving. The point of serving is that Paul wrote in Colossians that the work that we do, we do as unto the Lord. You realize when you teach a class, when you teach a life group, you're teaching for the Lord. And you're teaching as unto Him. You're not teaching a bunch of third graders. You're teaching for the Lord. If you're parking cars in the parking lot, you need to be doing that service for the Lord. Okay? Not for your own glory. You're doing that as unto him. I want to pray for you this week that God would bless you. Second thing is maybe you're not currently serving in any capacity here in the life of this church. This is not a shame on you. What I want to encourage you to do is to say, I need help finding a place where I could use my gifts and serve. I had lunch with a friend recently, and we were talking about service, and, and he said, here's what I'd like for you to do. He said, I need you to Tell me the job that nobody in the church wants to do, and I'm your man. That's what I'll do. What an exemplary picture of this passage of Scripture. Just tell me what nobody else in the church wants to do. He had served on a church staff before. He knew well that there were places that nobody wanted to work. We'll start our reenlistment challenge for our life groups in August. It's called His Story, Ours to Tell. We're going to be challenging people that are currently serving in life groups to continue serving there and to indicate their commitment to do that, to invite some of you to begin serving anew. And I just tell you that since I moved out of student ministry and moved to work with adults and then with all of our education ministry, that what I have learned is that enlisting adults to work with adults is like a walk in the park. I mean, it's great. We have some wonderful folks who serve in our adult ministry and are very gracious and want to continue working there. It's a little more challenging in youth ministry. Can I tell you what's really hard? Children and preschool. It's amazing. Jesus tells us today, if we want to be great, we need to serve 
all. Just know that that invitation's coming. Down the road, I want to ask you to be praying, God, where would you have me serve in this body of Christ? How can I give my life away to something greater than myself? Let God use you for his purposes and for his glory. I want to share this with you just as a, as a closing thought. Um, <clears throat> Martin Luther King Jr. said, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. Let me show that last picture. Um, my nephew just left this last week for Afghanistan. And I saw, well, sure, thank you, but he is there serving uh, and leaving Fort Hood. And he sent me this picture the other day, and I thought, wow, I'm using that Sunday. This is Elizabeth Laird. Any of you know her story? This lady is 80 years old. She's four foot tall, 10 inches. She has 12 um, grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and she is a volunteer for the Salvation Army. Do you know what she does with her life? She hugs soldiers. And he, he, when he sent that to me, he said, this lady hugs every leaving soldier and every incoming soldier. And she understands that as those soldiers leave, some of them she may not get to hug when they come back. Estimates that she has hugged 500,000 American soldiers. Is that inspirational or what? Now, what I want you to see from that is that, look, everybody can serve. Everybody can do something. Give your life away to something that matters. Give your life away for kingdom purposes. The disciples were all concerned about how they were going to be thought of, how they were going to be seen. My wife shared this prayer with me that she found earlier this week, and I thought it was appropriate for this. It's called a prayer at 60. Lord, as I grow older, I want to be known as available rather than a hard worker, compassionate more than competent, contented, not driven, generous instead of rich, gentle over being powerful, a listener more than a great communicator, loving versus quick and bright, reliable, not famous, sacrificial instead of successful, self-control rather than exciting, thoughtful more than gifted. Lord, I want to be a foot washer. Doesn't that express the desire of your heart, of how you want to be thought of, how you want to be known as a follower of Christ, one who exemplifies those very traits? And today I want to encourage you to pick up the basin and the towel. Be great, not by the world's standards. Be great by God's standards. Because of your relationship with Jesus, give your life away in service to him. Let's pray.